This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein and Go Go. It is a beautiful sunny Sunday here in Melbourne, and a big thank you to the team from Radiotherapy for bringing us through to 11 o'clock. I'm Dr. Shane. I'm joined in the studio with my good colleague, Chris KB. G'day. How you doing? I'm well. Actually, I'm sore as hell. Yes, I saw some bruises. Yes, uh, karate training day all day yesterday, which... Um, I'm just starting to feel my age. Do you feel trained? <laughs> I, no, yeah, I feel trained <laughs> by a couple of black belts. Yeah, they trained the hell oh, out of you. Yeah. yeah, they trained the crap out of me. Um, but uh, my voice is still working and my brain is vaguely on. on. It's important that you believe that. <laughs> yeah, indeed. Now, we have uh, a big show today for you folks. We've got a number of guests, a uh, couple in the studio, one on the phone, and Chris KP and I will be giving you some science news, but we're going to hold that off until the end of the show because there's something going on down Clayton Way that we just couldn't wait to tell you about. Uh, we have Professor Andrew Peel in the studio. Andrew is, of course, the director of the Australian Synchrotron and has been on this show many times before. Welcome to the studio, Andrew. Thanks, Shane. Good morning. Yeah, it's good to have you in. Now, um, you guys have cast the doors open for the hordes of, of massive, crazy science fans to come running in. What sort of... Is there fairy floss? There's the sausages <laughs> and I'm told slushies. We'll take oh, that. Good. Yeah. Um, so, ooh, slushies. Yeah. Um, are the sausages being cooked by the synchrotron? The sausages are being cooked by the <laughs> local rotary. I think if you've got the synchrotron cooking, you might be in trouble. Might be in trouble. Now, so what are people going to see if they head on out uh, to open day today? So it's everything's open. Uh, you'll see everything in behind that big round building that a lot of people drive down Blackburn, Wellington roads mm-hmm. and see. Mm-hmm. Um, for the fortunate few who got in early, they'll go actually deep inside the facility into oh, the well. inside of the tunnels yeah um, but those tours are fully booked out um, but for everybody else you can still get in uh, see all of the uh, places where the experiments happen mm-hmm. uh, and poke around pretty much at will okay and um in terms of the the sort of people have you got talks and things going on there will people we be do. able to speak to some of the scientists and yeah, it's, it's, yeah it's actually a really great day we um people come in um, they'll get a 10-minute introductory talk to give you a bit of an overview. Uh, and then there's a self-guided tour around the facility, and there are heaps of stations along the way where you can talk and interact with the scientists, mm-hmm. really ask them some probing questions. If you know something about a particular type of science, ask our guys. Mm. Now, let's have a bit of a chat about what the synchrotron does, because most people have heard of it, but I think it's, um, you know, if you haven't, get out from under that rock because it's a you know it's a pretty it's one of australia's most substantial pieces of scientific equipment what what is the big deal about the synchrotron though andrew i mean why do we have one here in australia and what do we well give us some examples of what we use it for sure so look in the international scene synchrotrons really are what i like to call a ticket to the dance um you really can't call yourself a technologically advanced country if you don't have a synchrotron facility Hmm. and Hmm. uh what they are Basically, it's a giant microscope. Sorry, can I ask New Zealand? Do they have one? New Zealand uh, is a uh, participant and uh, p- co-founder of the Australian oh, Society. So, so they're, they're a plus one at the dance. <laughs> <They are. laughs> well said. <laughs> Glad they're on board. That's right. Um, so, yeah, we're a giant microscope. So what, what mm. they are is a very large set of accelerator facilities using technology like particle accelerators. Um, for a lot of people have heard about the Large Hadron Collider. Um, the technology we use, we're a much smaller version, but very similar sorts of technology. Mm-hmm. And all of that is to create incredibly intense beams of light. Uh, and at the synchrotron, those beams of light are X-rays uh, and infrared light. 
and allow people to use the place, as I said, like a microscope. You can use those beams of light to probe your samples, uh, to look right down to the atomic scale uh, or, or at various scale lengths, actually, depending on your experiment, mm-hmm. and pull out information that you can't do any other way. And what sort of things do you put in there? I mean, I mean, if you think about standard microscopes, I mean, they cover pretty much everything. Do you guys do the same? I mean, do you have? Uh, I know you have some associations. We've had guests on before from some of the hospitals and so forth. I mean, give us a couple of examples of the sorts of things going on at the moment. Yep. So, yeah, as you say, like a microscope, um, we get used in almost every avenue of exploration. So, yes, we have researchers from hospitals, from medical research institutes, um, from all sorts of university departments, whether they be medical research, life sciences, chemistry, physics, biology, forensic science. Mm -hmm. Uh, We have people doing cultural studies. We work with curators at art galleries. Um, You name it, we do it. So, as you say, there's a massive diversity of, of research and applications. Does anything ever surprise you when, when a proposal is put across your desk? Do you ever sort of go, wow, I can't believe you want to do that, or that's, <laughs> well, that's a great idea? Yeah, absolutely. Um, we, we, uh, we have a lot of um, peer review systems going on in, our, in, in place. Uh, sometimes you do get some really, uh, let's say, interesting proposals. Uh, the good thing is that it's a strong, competitive and merit-based system, so everything that is proposed does go through a rigorous review. So is it, is it, is it hard to get your, your, your time in, in a beamline? Yes. Um, we turn away around about half proposals. Wow, okay. Um, there's a certain number of hours in the day, uh, and we're going pretty much flat out the whole time. Uh, so you can only squeeze in a certain number of experiments mm-hmm. uh, with the existing number of beamlines that we have at the facility. Yeah, I was so going to ask you about that. So you guys have got nine, is that right? So we have nine or ten, depending nine on the count. We can run ten, <laughs> ten in parallel. D- is right. that whether or not you use zero when you count? That's right. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> depending if you're using both hands. Yeah, both hands. Yeah. So how many, is it 20 or 24 that you can have So we could, facility? Technically we could have 38. Wow. Uh, but the sweet mm. spot is, as you say, somewhere in the 20s. Right. And, and what's, is it just finances at the moment that are holding back from that or? It's, yeah, basically if you look at the history of these things around the world, every single one of them gets built mm-hmm. with a suite of around 10-ish beamlines mm-hmm. like us. They work for a few years, prove that they're doing the job well, and then they double or right. even triple. Wow. Or in some cases quadruple. There are, there are synchrotron facilities around the world with more than 50 beamlines. Right. Um, now, our case is that we've been working now for seven, eight years. Yep. Uh, we're looking to try and grow the number of beamlines so that we can get into that sweet spot, and mm-hmm. we do have a pretty strong proposal out there to try and start raising the money to do that. Now Christopher Pine is a, a listener of the program, so, I mean, we can probably say... Absolutely. Him, you know, I'm sure another. everybody in government listening... Oh, they, they do, they do. And I can only assume yeah. that he's a massive Synchrotron fan too. Yeah, well, t- Tony Ever doesn't listen anymore, but... Um, <laughs> <laughs> but he's got so much spare time. <laughs> the, the beauty of it is, uh, and because we've worked with governments over the years uh, in state and federal spheres, uh, when you talk in depth and show people what the synchrotron can do, it's an absolute no-brainer. Mm-hmm. So we've had strong bipartisan support over the years, yeah. uh, and every minister I've ever dealt with has very quickly recognised um, what the facility can achieve. And really, I mean, we can spend a lot of time talking about the, the stainless steel, the nuts and bolts, the yep. accelerators, and mm. that's fantastic. And everybody down there for Open Day at the moment uh, is doing probably just that, poking around. But really why synchrotrons are great is because of the impact that they have and the difference they make to ordinary people's lives. Mm. That's one of the things that I, I've always liked about going down there is that it, it is actually awesome to look at. 
And if you find a moment to sort of, you know, look at the at the, the wonderful Soviet era post green colour, <laughs> um, and and the stainless steel nuts and bolts, and then and then just pause and think what happens inside there. That to me is awesome. Quite before you even get to the applications, yeah. just at that point of going, wow, mm. this does something that's a little bit extraordinary, and we, and it's in our backyard. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you yeah. get the G whiz factor, and then you get the totally. feel good factor. Yeah. yeah, and and it is it's it's one of those. Um, one of those examples that we don't have much of in in Australia, where people can go and see what a large scientific experiment actually looks like. I mean, we, I, I'm trying to think of what the next best large sort of that maybe the um, nuclear facility up. Uh, in, yeah, 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 I mean, but, but, yeah. but other than that, we don't really have large scientific facilities in Australia. We have we have a small number. Mm. Um, Ansto is in fact now the operator of the Australian mm. Synchrotron, yeah. and, and yeah. a lot of that experience from working with the research reactor at Lucas Heights comes into play. Mm. Uh, we're not running the synchrotron. The synchrotron actually uh, is a fantastic example of doing large-scale infrastructure really well. Um, there is the reactor. There's also the research vessel, yeah. um, the square kilometre array, and a number of other uh, pieces mm. of equipment around the country. Mm. But we are right up there with the biggest and the best of all of them. Yeah. Do, do you ever find, um, I mean, one of the things I used to imagine years back with the space shuttle program is, you know, a warning light goes off somewhere on one of 50 computer panels and someone says, you know, we've got a, uh, we've got a slight leak on uh, you know, tube number 427. Uh, <laughs> again? You know, again. Um, I mean, with the synchrotron, do, do you get into that sort of game where you have a slight problem somewhere and you've got, it literally takes you weeks to nail it down? I mean, because it is a complex operation. We, uh, we telemeter something like 10,000 different things to keep the facility going. Right. Uh, so, yes, when things break down, you've got a whole team of really good problem solvers trying to fix it as quickly as possible because, as you might imagine, if you've got 10 different experiments going on simultaneously and something goes wrong, mm. you've then got 10 experimental teams banging on your door saying, yeah. quick, get us back online. Mm. So we, we are really good at getting back online very quickly and mm. it's due to the experience of the, of the team. And, again, if for people getting down for Open Day, and I might add it's not too late to book in your tickets online, uh, then you can get down and actually see some of that complexity. Yeah. Is it your fault, Andrew, if something goes wrong? Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> the director, uh, presumably at some stage, someone turns around and blames you sooner or later. And sadly, when things go right, it's not due to me. Yeah, no, of course not. No. <laughs> Fantastic. Now, in terms of... Just um, give us a quick snapshot of the facility. How many people are working there at the moment? So we have about 140 uh, people on site uh, working. Yeah. And our job is to enable researchers all around the country to actually do their work. Mm. So our team um, has a pretty lean uh, corporate team. So, we've, you know, you've got to keep the purchase orders going. You've got to keep the finances going, um, the communications going. Mm -hmm. uh, but then we have a large engineering and technical team mm -hmm. uh, and a large science team. Uh, and the science team are the ones who are really at the coalface. Uh, and then with that team, there's a logistics team, if you like, who organise the bookings for what is now about 4,500 researcher visits every year wow. that we uh, coordinate uh, the, yeah. the travel and accommodation. Hard, hard and, and to argue, it's hard to argue with those sorts of numbers in terms of use and value of the yeah, facilities. Exactly. I mean, that's a, that's a large number of... I mean, that's a university. Yeah, it is. In, in it terms is. of in terms of number of researchers, that's a, a good sized university, four and a half thousand. Absolutely. Yeah. And in terms of um, the new beamline case, we know the demand is there. If you put on mm. double the amount of beamlines, we'll be doing, doing double the amount of science. Mm. We should do it. Now, you're giving a talk later today at the Synchrotron Open Day. I am. What, what's that about? Uh, so it's part of our introductory uh, speech or tour for people, and it's a little mm. bit about what we've just talked about, about what the synchrotron is, yep. uh, and a little bit about those sort of impacts. So if I can just quickly give you one example. Um, 
we have researchers coming in looking at um, protein structures. Yep. And the sort of fundamental paradigm here is if you understand the structure, you understand you can start to understand the function, mm-hmm. you can start to work on diseases uh, mm-hmm. that might affect people. And we've got some f- uh, terrific examples now where researchers have solved those structures uh, that target particular diseases, design drugs to mm. inhibit uh, the, the action or encourage the action of proteins mm. to, to uh, prevent those diseases from developing. And now we have a number of examples uh, where they're working with major pharmaceutical companies with drugs in clinical trials on the verge of, of moving into normal use um, to help. And these are for things like chronic lymphocytic leukaemia, um, so really serious diseases that affect large numbers of people every year. Mm. Well, Andrew, it seems like a long time ago when we shared a, a lab space uh, back at Melbourne Uni. but uh, of time. But you've certainly uh, done well and you're doing a great job out there at the, the Synchrotron. I advise everyone, if you've got nothing to do today, or even if you've got something to do, I mean, birthday party shit like it's that, just, just brush off. it off. Yeah. Um, head on out to the Synchrotron for their, their open day and um, you might get to listen to Professor Andrew Peel talk about the facility. If not, there will be plenty of people it's there not, to chat to. And it's not inappropriate to have a birthday party at the Synchrotron. <laughs> that yeah, is an Just awesome relocate. We're better. Last minute. Yeah, yeah totally. Yeah. Last minute relocate. Um, Andrew, thanks so much for coming in and, and good luck with today and with the, the, the future success. I hope I hope we can, in a year from now, talk about the expansion of the Synchrotron beam line number to, let's say, let's just call it 25. Brilliant. Thanks for having me, guys. It's <laughs> great. Uh, Professor Andrew Peel is the director of the Australian Synchrotron and it is their open day today, so look them up, get on out there and have a look at the facility. You're listening to Einstein the Gogo on 3 Triple We're going to play some music and then we'll be back with a guest uh, talking about the polar regions in a moment. It should be pretty cool. 3 Triple We're back. You are listening to 3 R. We are uh, guestless, you might say. Well, not quite. We had a guest we were hoping to line up on the phone uh, to talk about the polar regions. The guestless but, years. But unfortunately, uh, they are not answering. So we will try them again a bit later. But we do have a guest in the studio live. We have Dr Misty Jenkins. She's a senior research officer at the Peter McCallum Cancer Centre. Misty, thanks so much for coming in. Oh, it's a pleasure, Shane. Now, look, uh, we, um, we've been meaning to get you on for a while because we've been watching your stuff and it's taken the the great uh, dr cromo jeff craig to uh, give me a boot up the the button finally <laughs> finally get you in um now you work in the area of uh cancer and immune system and, and so forth why is there so much interest it seems as though this is really peaking at the moment mm, around the use of the immune system to fight cancer i mean what what normally happens with cancer cells in the body and the immune system that's right so really over the last decade the whole field has been completely revolutionized and we're now moving towards this era of personalised medicine, where we're able to take the patient's own immune system to fight their own cancers, mm-hmm. which really makes sense when you think about it. You know, for centuries, all we had was surgery. Um, then we had radiation when X-rays were discovered around 1900, and then after um, the First World War, when mustard, ca- mustard gas killed off the bone marrow of soldiers, they discovered chemotherapy, and we really haven't had much since. But really, the last decade has seen uh, has really been revolutionised, where we're able to now. Um, give patients therapy to wake up sleepy immune systems so give them Mm. drugs called antibodies to basically target their killer t-cells and what this does is it rearms them and reawakens them to kill the cancer cells so so when when you're sort of just healthy um are there any sort of cancer-like stuff floating around the body that our immune system deals with anyway does that happen? I mean, or, or when you just get cancer, you just start getting cancer, does the immune system not know that this is a bad thing? So 
it's kind of a complicated answer to that because you know cancer isn't just one disease of course mm-hmm. cancer is thousands of different diseases yep. and so um you know the way your immune system might recognize one over another can be very different and also the way it recognizes it between individuals because of our different genetics backgrounds so um you know when a cancer cell when a normal cell becomes a cancerous cell it has to somehow tell the immune system that it exists mm. because your immune system has of course gone to immune system school and doesn't go around killing your own cells right. Of course, sometimes that does happen, and that's yeah, when we get autoimmunity yeah. in diseases like diabetes. But in the case of cancer, when a cell becomes cancerous, your immune system has to recognise that it is now different. It is somehow a foreign, dangerous cell that needs to be taken out. Mm. So that's an interesting question then. If you um, produce some sort of diagnostic or some sort of um, some sort of drug that will in fact deal with cancer cells or, or some sort of trigger to the human immune system to fight its own cancer cells, is there a risk that it's going to fight cells that aren't cancer? Um, well, I guess it depends how good you're diagnosed. I mean, we, the, the, you know, really we're, we're identifying now the uh, proteins changes on those cells that are specific just for the cancer cells okay and this is on the surface of a cell am i picturing this right it's that's just, right yeah, exactly okay. so that's right so you your killer t-cells are white blood cells mm-hmm. we all have them zooming around our body and their job is to recognize the enemy and then take it out and when they recognize that enemy being a cancer cell or a virus infected cell these killer cells essentially throw grenades at them and make them blow up nice and then the pac-man the other white blood cell <laughs> called the macrophage comes along and gobbles up all the debris and cleans it up and so in a normal healthy immune response this is going on in our bodies all the time when your lymph nodes are flared up Mm -hmm. and you've got a cold you know that's virus infecting your cells your killer cells get armed they come in they proliferate they divide they mount their army and then they go in and they take out the enemy and so the same thing happens with cancer cells so when your immune system is winning the war it, it, it has the ability to take it out but of course a lot of cancer can be immunosuppressive it can dampen down the immune response or even be invisible to the immune response, which is, you know, one of the really hardest things in cancer biology. Mm. I, I love the fact that the new film Pixels means that you can use the Pac-Man analogy again yeah, because it was, pretty, it was pretty much off the table yeah, for quite a while. Yeah. Um, and now there's a whole lot of teenagers listening to the show going, oh, yeah, I know what you're talking about. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Pac-Man. That's yeah, right, cool. Pac-Man. That's <laughs> <laughs> so let, let's get into some of the, some of the sort of um, the nitty-gritty or the detail of how you go about this because we're not talking about large molecules and so forth here. This is small stuff how do you uh, you know tell a person's immune system or train a person's immune system to do something so specific and we're not talking you know, as you say every cancer is different so you know this is saying okay i want to go after that person's specific cancer on this day how do you get the immune system to do that so the first thing is to do the first thing is to identify what is about that cancer cell that's different so there's a couple of different approaches one is as i mentioned before using monoclonal antibodies which essentially can block certain receptors or you know binding proteins on the killer which cause an inhibitory or a switch off signal right so if we can block the off signal then that turns it back on and so that they're the drugs we're seeing in clinical trials at the moment having Mm -hmm. a mate showing really amazing promise in the clinic particularly um, against melanoma the other approach um, is a slightly different one where once we know what what that protein is it's different on the cancer cell we can then design specific killer cells to kill that cell so we can actually get them to express that receptor of interest much like a lock and key as you say it's a very Mm -hmm. specific mechanism and transduce or uh, enable those white blood cells of that patient to express that 
killer receptor to kill that specific cancer, mm. right? It's really amazing technology. These are called mm. CAR T-cells, chimeric antigen receptor T-cells. Again, they're currently going through clinical trials and showing amazing promise in the clinic. They've had great promise against um, hematological cancers and blood cancers, and now we're, you know, trying to crack solid tumours. But... Um, but they're really incredible because now, now if you can design an antibody against something, you can now design a killer T cell against mm. it. Mm. So we've we've really uh, entered a whole new age of personalised medicine, such that you know, I not only do they express the receptor of interest, but they also still express their their normal sort of T cell receptor. So I would imagine a day where we go to the clinic, we go to the GP, and we get our flu shot in one arm, and we get our you know anti. Her two breast cancer shot in the other arm. Right. Now, you, you mentioned earlier autoimmune diseases. I mean, this is something I find fascinating. If if you have someone who has one, or often often there are multiple autoimmune diseases in the one person, what does that mean for this sort of therapy? Will that still work? I mean, one of the, one of the issues with autoimmune, of course, is when you fire the immune system up, it mm. often goes in the wrong places. Is is it still? I mean, there's a very large number of people who have autoimmune diseases. Mm. Does does that mean they're out of the game for this sort of therapy, or is it just? Yeah, more look, that's difficult? a good question, and I think that's something that will sort of come out in time throughout these clinical trials. Um, I'm not sure what the makeup is of those patients in terms of their um, mm. autoimmune disease profiles. Um, but the, I must say, I must stress, I mean, these these um, treatments are very specific and they're given to people who are dealing with some pretty severe life-threatening mm. cancers. So, um, you know, maybe, depending on your autoimmune disease, it's probably the least of your concerns if you're dealing right. with a life-threatening mm, sure. um, cancer. Mm. Mm. But it's a good point. I think we don't, we don't, we don't really know how to answer that well mm. yet. Now, I mean... I don't think many of our listeners would be in a situation where they haven't had a friend or a family member or even themselves dealing with cancer. And every time we have a guest on and we talk about these things, there's a lot of enthusiasm and so forth. But is this is this a paradigm shift in the way we're treating cancer and is it near term? I mean, I, I went to a funeral on Friday as mm. a result of this disease and, you know, it's very immediate for a lot of people. What, what sort of time frame are we actually talking about here before this is sort of more commonly used, assuming the clinical trials go yeah, well. Yeah, right. No, I'm sorry for your loss. And you're right. I think we've all been touched by cancer. Mm. We all know someone who's mm. been affected. I certainly have and everyone I know has. And look, I think that this, this, what's happened in the last decade with these new immune treatments, cell-mediated therapy, has completely blown everyone away. Even the clinicians, I think, weren't expecting it to work so well, such that, you know, there was one clinical trial that was actually stopped because it was unethical to keep giving people a placebo because it worked so well. So, um, and in fact, Australia was the first country in the world to recently um, TGA approve the use of... um, Catruda anti-PD-1 therapy um, for melanoma patients in this country. Mm-hmm. So we are seeing um, a much more rapid move from bench to bedside. Certainly where I work at the Peter McCallum Cancer Centre here in Melbourne, uh, we're very unique in the sense that we're a large research hot, but we're, we're a large research institute that sits within a public hospital. Mm. So we have scientists working at the bench that are mixing on a day-to-day basis with clinicians. It's a very collaborative environment. So, you know, very quickly you can work out what the clinical problems are and then you've got research scientists, you know, there willing mm. to address them at the bench. So um, so we are seeing the movement from, you know, sort of so-called bench 
bench to bedside mm. therapies uh, moving amazingly um, rapidly. Mm. Now, every uh, every day when I drive to work, I work in the medical faculty, me- medicine, dentistry, and health sciences. There, I have to drive past this big construction site, <laughs> which I assume is going to be your new place of fun and work. Yes. Um, the new. I mean, tell us about that. You're moving. The Peter McCallum's moving to the Victorian Comprehensive Cancer Centre. Correct. On the corner of Royal Parade and Grattan Street. I mean, this is one of the most phenomenal-looking buildings. Yes. I think, in mm. Melbourne. Yeah, they're calling it the Love Boat. Apparently, it looks like a huge cruise <laughs> oh, liner. That's <laughs> a front house. It's yeah, a beautiful well, building. Uh, yeah, I mean, I'm not sure that's totally appropriate. For I think a it's, I think it's <laughs> perfect for a cancer centre. Yes, uh, for the cancer cruise. It just looks. I mean, it looks like an extraordinary transition in terms of lab spaces and and facilities to to accommodate patients. It is. It's a custom built billion dollar building. Um, it will be the new home of Peter Mac. It's going to be amazing. We've definitely outgrown where we are. Mm. Uh, we're all sort of working on top of each other and the place <laughs> is a bit of a rabbit warren to get around. So we're really looking forward to having a nice new facility, both for our researchers but also for primarily for our patients and their families and visitors. So mm. uh, it also means that we'll be located in the Parkville Precinct, which means that um, it enables great strengthening of our current collaborations with our partner with our partner organisations. Um, so I'm personally, you know, collaborating just across the road at the Peter Doherty Institute. Mm-hmm. We've got we've got um, gate, you know, gangways linking us to the Royal Melbourne. Mm. And also for our, from our patients' point of view, um, it's going to be terrific. My, my dad actually has had lung cancer and he had his lung uh, removed, his right lung and um, you know, and at Peter Mac we didn't have an inten- intensive care unit so right. all of that surgery had to happen at the Royal Melbourne so right. that is going to be um, really great for our patients to have their treatment at Peter Mac but have access to those facilities mm-hmm. at the hospitals so mm-hmm. I think it's, it's going to be a win-win all around. And as you say there's those uh, little bridges, the walkway bridges that they presumably, there are two of them, What? What? why are there two across to the Royal Melbourne? Right yeah. That's one, one in each direction? Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well it could be, but they go the different levels of the hospital so So one i think intensive care and one well different parts of the hospital so different parts of the hospital when when do you uh smash the champagne across the front of the building Uh, well we move in (laughs) i'm giving them the option (laughs) so the building will be finished at the end of the year start of next year and then they'll start to move in facilities and core infrastructure and equipment and then we physically relocate the building in on the 16th of june very exciting. So, well, you'll see a whole bunch of trucks. Like, I mean, it's a bit of a logistical nightmare. They're doing an amazing job. I mean, they've, mm. they've been in planning for this for a long time. Uh, Peter Mac have been doing a great job at keeping us all informed and Good. sort of the communications of what exactly is happening, what we need to do to get ready for the move. But they're literally, we're literally moving a hospital mm, yeah. <laughs> mid June next it's, year. It's extraordinary because I remember when they moved uh, everything from the the women, the or the, ch- the children. And well, the, the yeah. women was a big thing, but the children. Yeah. Um, and they had the connections between the old and the new building and they literally went, you know, every floor, I think they coloured them and every floor was done floor by floor by floor. Now, to be fair, that was about a 50 metre journey. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You, you guys have got about a K. Um, That's right. It's going to be, as you say, there's trucks and stuff. You can't just wheel gurneys down a corridor. No. I mean, this is going to be quite an extraordinary It's a um, huge feat. Mm. Uh, we, you know, and it's not just, of course, the patients, all their core equipment and the, the PET scanners and, the, you know, minus 80 freezers and biohazard hoods and Mm. You know, we've got a lot of equipment. I'll tell you what, you, you probably should. I mean, obviously, not, not the massive infrastructure, not the stuff that's sensitive or damageable easily, but I reckon block off some streets and have a, just have a march. Just <laughs> with the stuff you can move. Help people, even just a couple of fake people on beds, you know, some samples in a rack. I think it'd, that'd look great. People love it. Yeah. Well, they would. They've actually had some fake, they've had some fa- you know, some actors on beds, you know, practicing for the move, to, you know, because it is such a huge logistical feat. I'm telling you, that is, that is a street party way yeah. to happen. Because I know if that, I mean, just having two kids myself and knowing how this works, um, 
I'd, I'd get there and it'd be like, where's, where's Toby? <laughs> yeah, I, I, would have, I would have left someone in the old building or, you know, left. Where's our, where the hell's our MRI machine? Yeah. Chris, have you got it? <laughs> yeah, the, you, you can imagine, like, just making... I mean, I'm sure they have checks and rechecks and so forth. Look, they are do- you can't it lose an done. MRI machine. Yeah. <laughs> Come on. It's in the second drawer. Big donut. Yeah. Where's the... <laughs> oh, we can laugh about the equipment, but, of course, you know, some of our patients, you know, yeah. may at that, that time be very sick, and so they'll, you know... Yeah. So they'll be well and truly looked after. They're sort mm. of, you know, of care and ambulances and all, and all the rest of it to move. So mm, yeah, I know, I'm yeah. full confidence it'll be done to the utmost professionalism. Of course, yeah. No, and, I'm, and I'm sure that the moving to such a, you know, moving even the sickest patients into such a fantastic facility will be a positive thing for them as well. I mean, the place will be, you know, better equipped. There'll be more space for them. Everything Absolutely. will be. Absolutely. Everything will be great. Um, I've, I've watched the construction of that building from the moment they dug the big hole, and it has been impressive. And um, and it's sort of close now. The, they're putting the external facades. I noticed the name was up over the last week they put the vtc name up on the side nice. which was was pretty good but it is a billion dollar facility as you it said is. it's a lot of money it's one of the in fact it's the most expensive possible melbourne's built i think uh, mm. full stop i'm not sure what the really? children's cost i think it was about 700 million but anyway no, I, it is it is an amazing facility so now you mentioned uh, you were working a bit with the peter doherty um of course infection immunity makes sense for you because you you work on the immune system what what's happening there with the with the doherty institute yeah so um so i do actually i, I did my phd there uh, well, in the microbiology and immunology mm. department with with Peter Doherty and Steve Turner, so they gave me a really great foundational grounding on killer T cell biology, which I then um, I, I I took that over to Oxford and Cambridge, and I did a four year postdoc, and I'm now back at Peter Mac, and I've just continued those um, collaborations, and really calling on their expertise now with a new project. So that's the thing about great thing about science, you know, you don't work mm. in isolation, and you would know this, Shane. You know, you work in teams, you work in teams yep. of people, and you know, you can call on other people's expertise. So I'm an expert in, you know, this particular part of you know killer cell biology someone else is an expert in genetics someone Mm. else is an expert in something you know physiology or something else so you know sometimes your science takes you down a path that you don't have expertise Mm. in Mm. and it's you know much more efficient use of time to say okay let's work together and i'll do this bit and you can do that bit Mm. and you know we can we can answer it together so together with their with the doherty we're trying to essentially vaccinate against cancer so, as I mentioned before, these CAR T cells, being able to actually stimulate these cells through their cognate sort of T cell receptor, but then be, having them be able to kill through their kind of mm. cancer detector. Mm-hmm. So, Peter Doherty was one of your supervisors. Did he get the Nobel Prize while you were working with him? No, so he got the Nobel Prize oh, in 1996. Oh, no parties. So, no, no. <laughs> missed, missed that champagne. I was probably just old, probably barely old enough to drink champagne at that point. Yeah, I was going to say, it's like, I, 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 could, I, I can't keep dates in my head. It feels like just not that if long it's ago. it's more than two years ago, I've nothing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. yeah, that's, yeah. A, that's a problem. Misty, look, it's been great having you in chatting about this stuff because it is a, a, an amazing area of work and I think a lot of people are sort of really hoping that this, this is all it seems to be at the moment and... Um, Certainly, everything that I've read seems um, positive about this, and and people are still looking for that that point of concern, but it just doesn't seem to be coming out no, in this particular it, area of work. It really is, and I think mm. that's that's you know that's the one thing to really get across to the listeners. It's an exciting time to be a cancer mm. immunologist, and it's an exciting time in understanding fundamental cancer biology. And these new treatments are really revolutionising um, the outcomes for patients and their families. Mm. Well, good luck with it, mm. Misty Jenkins, uh, senior research officer at. 
at the Peter McCallum Cancer Centre. Thank you so much for being our guest today. Pleasure. Thank you, Shane. We're going to take a break for some music, folks, and we'll be back in just a few moments. Chris KP and have we have a lot of news backlog to cover Do off. We? We, we <laughs> All right, I'll just get some backlog then. Yeah, Chris, start working. You've got about... Uh, this music track lasts for almost four minutes. You've got oh, plenty easy. of time. <laughs> yeah, we'll be back in a moment, folks. If you haven't guessed it, you're listening to 3 R. 3 Uh, you're back. You're listening to Einstein and Gago. There's just two dudes in the studio today, Chris KP and myself, Dr. Shane, which is why the show has taken a plumb. Liv's, Liv's here. Liv's, oh, I'm so sorry, Liv. Grab a microphone. She won't. No, she won't. Uh, she's a silent influence. She's a silent, well, she is. She's a good influence on us and she does our Twitter feed. If you don't, uh, watch, listen, read our Twitter feed, follow. There's the word there I was like, well about. done. Our Twitter feed or our Facebook page folks please um jump on board because we do put a lot of information there and i i actually these days share quite a bit of stuff on facebook and twitter um sort of not personal yeah well once liv showed me how to do it (laughs) not personal indeed uh once liv showed me how to do it i uh i got on board um now we're going to give you some news actually because we haven't got to the news section do you want to start sure you got something i I do well i found an interesting thing um so some scientists at the i love i love these names not because they sound particularly interesting, so sorry, bad radio, because they read interestingly mm. from the Karolinska Institute. Oh, yeah. That's um, a great place. Yeah, in Stockholm. But it's the way you... It'll look, look it up, folks, because the, the spelling is just cool. Um, they did a study, and they didn't want to do it, you know, half-baked, so they examined 5.5 million men and women <laughs> who had wow. been born in Sweden. Yep. yep. Not, not actually examine them all, because some of them weren't here anymore. What's the population of Sweden? That's going to be a fair yeah. portion. <laughs> it, well, over time, yes. But they were born between 1938 and 1991, um, and this is the important thing. Those people ranged in height between 3.3 feet, which is, what is that, uh, it's about a, uh, a metre and a bit. 9.5 million, I just looked it up. Thank you. So, so yeah, this is actually, compared to compared to contemporary population, it's, it's called half. Know, more than half, yeah. Mm. Um, so, yeah, really short people, right the way through to people who are 7 foot 4. So that's oh, a beta to about 2.2, yeah. yeah. That's the range of heights. The reason this matters, of course, uh, and they then, they then tracked people who were, who were still around, who, who mm-hmm. were, you know, 20 mm-hmm. in 1958 or had been around up to the end of 2011. Um, and they found that for every 10 centimetres of height you have, mm-hmm. more height you have than other people, your risk of developing cancer increased by 18% in women and 11% in men. Is that because you're closer to the sun? Well, so this is the thing. I, so I, I was talking with my my convenient, conveniently placed cancer researcher wife this morning about this. Oh, there you go. And she was, yeah. Um, I got. I know why I married you because I found this article today. And she said she was she was very interested in it. And then she said, well, but on the other hand, if you think about it, if you're taller, you've got more cells. The odds of something going wrong in a cell, you know, uh, duplication are going to be higher. Is that? Is that right? Now, and that, yes, obviously it's not quite that simple. Um, I'm sure there's more to it than that. And, and as Misty was pointing out, you know, cancer ain't mm-hmm. cancer. It's not mm-hmm. that simple. Mm-hmm. But yeah, if you actually got more cells, you don't get, if you're a taller person, you haven't got bigger cells. You've got more of them. Mm. Uh, and they are multiplying and, 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 and copying, if you like. And so, and that's where cancer frequently comes from. It's from something that goes wrong in that copying process. And your so, skeletal structure in particular is, yeah, is different size. Yeah. Mm. Um, anyway, uh, and, and of course, bone marrow has an influence in, in, uh, in, in cell growth and cell development mm. too. And it's Mm. You've got more of that. You've got more 
etc etc so yes um that i don't know whether they've actually tried to tell us that that's the reason it's happened in fact not in this article i'm reading currently <laughs> but yeah but it looks like being short uh, might be one more thing you can add to your list of influencing factors with regard to cancer risk well that's very disturbing to me because i'm quite tall yes yes well Liv's, <laughs> Liv was grinning before when i told her that because she's not <laughs> well you know i'm in that category as i say when people say how tall are you and they say at my height you don't need to know yeah, <laughs> it doesn't matter anymore. I don't know. I yeah. don't care. Yeah. Uh, I think I'm about 6'1", 6'2". That, what does that put me in? The 11th, 12th percentile I don't higher know. risk factor? I have, a, I have a friend who's 6'4", who very proudly told me many years ago that he's technically a giant. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently that's how it's measured. I, I've no idea if that's true or not. Oh, I, I, damn it. I wish I'd grown the, should have eaten more veggies with I him. I look him up. Yeah. That's fantastic. Yeah. Well, now let me tell you something very exciting. Um... And I find it hard not to get, get excited about this, and listeners of the show would be aware that I'm a bit of a freak for this stuff. But um, the New Horizons probe is continuing to send back amazing stuff. Great images. Say. It is still coming. And the latest, uh, well, probably not the latest. I'm sure there's stuff coming in daily. But um, some of the amazing stuff uh, that has come in the last week is around um, essentially what the colour of the sky is in um, on Pluto. Oh, yeah. Wow. And so there was this a particular orientation where the what you've got to think of as the New Horizons probe was essentially sitting behind Pluto um, in its shadow relative to the sun. Mm. And so all you see is the light sort of skipping through the edges, through the atmosphere. And when they use all the fancy equipment and they they then back out what our eyes would see in terms of colour, voila, it's blue. Oh, how nice. So kind of blue skies, which, um, you know, is interesting, which uh, gives you an idea of what... um, what the atmosphere is made up of and so forth but it's um it's quite incredible because um it means uh these sort of blue wavelengths uh reflected in the same way that they are on earth uh-huh. um which is very cool doesn't mean you can go and stand there and breathe deeply though of course <laughs> um in fact there's um particular uh, sort of organic organic molecule called tholins that are pretty these clumpy organic molecules that they think are um quite prolific in the upper atmosphere of pluto and in fact they're what cause apparently the staining of this brownie color we've seen a lot yes, of in the pluto yes. images that's what causes yes. that as well tholin. um tholin. good name for a boy oh you think tholin yeah come on <laughs> Tholins. Anyone got a child being born soon? I recommend Tholin. Tholin. Mm. Yeah, okay. Um, and so, so yeah, there's a lot of this material. And they've also found it on the ground. Now, now one of the things that they have um, looked at is um, over the years is they've found a lot of uh, frozen nitrogen and, and, and carbon um, compounds on, on Pluto, and that's pretty common. Um, what they haven't found a lot of, though, is just frozen water. And it's interesting because um, they've found that now on, on the surface of Pluto, which is kind of cool. But... Um, one of the differences uh, is that um, at Pluto's temperature, um, water doesn't sort of flow in like like glaciers. It's actually a lot harder. So you know, it's like a rock at those temperatures. It's really yeah, it's really strong. Um, whereas things like, um, for example, uh, nitrogen does. It can still flow. And so the you know we saw those pictures of the ice mountains. Yes. Well, they're going to be made of water. But they're getting it eroded by nitrogen? Is that a thing? Oh, potentially, yeah, yeah. If there's nitrogen there. But they're they're hard enough, water is hard enough to hold that structure firm. Because I remember when when I first saw those pictures and people said, oh, it's it's water ice, you know, they're they're ice mounds. I'm thinking, well, I've stacked ice up in my day. (laughs) 
<laughs> and it ain't that strong. You know, it's actually, it's yeah, actually yeah, not yeah. that strong. Yes. Yeah, here on Earth. Yeah, snowmen aren't, aren't really yeah, structurally not, not, sound. No, no, no. But you know, here on Earth, our atmospheric pressure, our temperatures, but, um, at the much lower temperatures on Pluto and lower atmospheric pressure, of course, these, these materials are, are very, are very strong. Very and so, so that's, um, and so one of the things that they find interesting is there's not much water anywhere else, but it is in the mountains. So it's kind of cool. It may be that it's fixed there and it can't get out. I want, but, uh, that's, the, that's the thing that I find intriguing, actually, about <clears throat> a lot of this stuff um, about, about Pluto is this idea of, also this is what it's like now, that's great, but has it changed much? Is it going to change much? I find that really interesting. Well, well, one of the great things about these Pluto images that has um, changed our, our view of, of Pluto is we always thought this frozen, solid, you know, nothing changing mm-hmm. at all, whereas what we've seen instead is this incredibly dynamic World, yeah, um, where many of the surface features are relatively new. In fact, you know, you look at them. There's no, there's no impact craters. Yeah, it's because they've recently flowed and and washed out any they've impact craters that them. were <laughs> exactly they've backfilled them. It's uh, <laughs> backfilled them. Um, so you know that that I think is one of the most incredible things that we've seen mm. from this particular mission is that it's a reforming surface. It's, mm. a, it's a, there's active geology. It's, it's dynamic. It's dynamic. Yeah. It's, a, it's it's not a dead, boring mm. world at all. But it's probably, in fact, you know, I have to say for me. Um, you know, short of a couple of the moons of Jupiter and Saturn. Yes. Um, and, you know, I did love the book The Martian, but, um, <laughs> yes, yes. but, but you know, it does look like um, Pluto is one of the most interesting objects in the solar system. Yeah, nice. Sorry, Uranus, but... Um, just a bit, oh what? Yeah, just boring. <laughs> um, yeah. So anyway, look, we're gonna we're gonna take another break, um, but we do have an important uh, giveaway, um, a three triple R live to air event. We have four double passes to give out to Dan Kelly uh, live during the Banana Lounge broadcasting Tuesday, October thirteen at one p.m. sharp. It will go for one hour, and the doors swing open at twelve thirty. So that's October thirteen uh, live to air performance by Dan. Kelly um, should be pretty good actually so if you'd like one of those double passes we have four of them you can call us up now and the amazing Liv will be answering the phones um, which means our Twitter feed will go dark for a few moments Um, till we do that we're going to play some music and then we'll be back we've got a bit more uh, stuff to talk about a bit more news we'll be back in just a moment three triple Uh, we're back. Uh, if you're wondering what tracks we played for you today, that one was uh, Sue Stayer with uh, Cousin Tony's brand new Firebird. Before that was Bob Moses with Too Much Is Never Enough. And the first track we played was Castle Comer with Fire Alarm. Chris KP, we need some more science news before we go. Uh, you've been looking into some cool stuff. I, I found this very little article. So if you imagine, you know, so many of us have done first aid training and... Uh, hmm. You know, you get told that uh, you, you, one of the things you want to try and do is stop blood loss. So if yeah. you've got an open wound, that's fine. But, of course, we also know that um, one of the ways you can... You can do that physically. You put a, a big fat thing on it, you place lots of pressure. Um, oh, hello. Oh, is, is that better or worse? Uh, it's better. I'm just going to okay. swap your mic. You're a little low there. For I feel like reason. I'm... Uh, uh, listeners can't see this, but I feel like I'm um, either a sports person or a politician. I've got, like... <laughs> 17 <laughs> microphones in my face. And I'm terrified. Sorry, I'm, I'm terrified I'm going to say the wrong thing. Um, <laughs> let's face it. I'm going to say the wrong thing. Anyway, you get told you want to try and stop blood loss. Um, and you can do that physically. You put lots of pressure or you can do it to some extent chemically too, because mm. you know, the clotting process is essentially a chemical process. The problem with trying to use any kind of, get any 
anything chemical into a wound while it's freely flowing with blood. It's, the blood's pushing everything back out again. Hmm. Um, and there have been efforts to try and uh, and try and produce, you know, I guess um, uh, particles that are that are self-propelling, if you like, so they can get in through that blood flow. Um, but what a bunch of scientists have have managed to do is they've actually managed to show that if you can produce simple, very quite simple, gas-producing microparticles, mm-hmm. then the act of bubbling, essentially effervescing, um, can actually help drive uh, those particles up against the flow of the blood. They've actually got stuff moving, uh, they said, at velocities of up to 1.5 centimetres per second. That's pretty fast. It's, blood. It is. It, it, blood into yep. blood, yeah. Um, and they've managed to deliver, you know, therapeutics millimetres into inside wounds. So they've actually got them, quite, it's quite a distance inside a wound, and it's carrying whatever you want. Uh, at this point, I think it's largely a proof of principle, but it means that they mm. can actually have self-propelling, somewhat actively motile um, therapeutics against the flow of blood to get to the source um, of the of the actual problem. Because mm. you wonder how you would other... Uh, I'm trying to think of how otherwise you would actually get the materials in there. Nanobots. <laughs> I don't know. But you just can't do it, right? I mean, the, I mean yeah. blood pressure is quite high. Yeah, you either so, physically poke something in there and hope yeah. it doesn't do any more damage. Yeah, um, or, or you don't do it at all. Yeah, or you wait. Mm. Yeah, exactly. Mm. Quite clever. Now it's been uh, it's been one of those big weeks in science this week, where uh, the Nobel's, of course, were announced, and uh, you know some of them are quite interesting. So the Nobel Prize, you've probably heard this, folks, but we'll just run through them quickly anyway. If you haven't been watching the late late news, because this sort of stuff usually doesn't make the <laughs> sad evening true. news, yeah. sadly, um, the Nobel Prize in Physics um, went to Takeki. Kajita and Arthur B. Macdonald for the discovery of neutrino oscillations. So this is the idea. Um, these funky neutrino particles um, basically can, you know, there are three different types of neutrino particles that we we see, um, but the cool thing is that these neutrino particles can change mm. which one of those three types they are. Now, this uh, has a whole lot of consequences, uh, one in which was the idea that the neutrinos originally were thought to have no mass at all. So massless particles like photons. Um, but in order to have this change process occurring, they have to have a small but finite mass. Um, now, this was a big change to the standard model of physics because uh, that was not uh, mm. something that was included. So, yeah, pretty pretty big deal. Pretty big deal. The, um, when was that? When, when was their actual work being done? Uh, it's a little while back now. It was, um, well, let me see, do I have... That's often the case. I find it yeah, interesting. Yeah, yeah, it was, it was a little way back. But um, the, the cool thing about neutrino physics, of course, is that um, is that it's completely undone. We really don't know much about these particles yet. There's a lot of science still to happen, and we just have not really even, I think, scratched the surface of these really unusual particles, most of which, of course, pass right through us. Well, I think that the really cool thing about neutrino science is the places they have, they've built to study them. Yeah. The ridiculous, yeah. you know, under a mountain, under the ocean, huge, great thing full of, you know, tons of pure water. I just yeah. love that yeah. kind of... I love that someone's brain thought, you know, we need... We need some tons of pure water buried in the middle of the earth. Yeah. Quickly, let's get yeah. to work. Yeah, we've detectors all around in yeah, the hope yeah. that there'll be one. Yeah, yeah. One interaction every six months, and uh, we'll detect that and we'll monitor it. And I it's love hard. It. That's the thing. It's very hard to study, uh, to study neutrinos. So, mm. r- really cool stuff. Um, Nobel Prize for Chemistry went to um, uh, for mecha- mechanistic studies of DNA repair. Really which important. Is really interesting about DNA repair, physiology, and medicine for uh, discoveries of Nobel therapies against infections caused by roundworm parasites. So, um, you know, malaria and stuff. Yeah. Really cool. I mean, that, that was the one to me that I thought, haven't they given that out already? That seems like a, a deal. Now, we're out of time. We're going to have to go. Thank you, Chris KP. Always a pleasure. Uh, thank you, Liv, for doing our Twitter feed. Uh, you've been listening to Einstein and Gogo on 3RRR. Remember, folks, science is everywhere. But uh, for the next hour, 
you can pretend that food's everywhere, which it is too, uh, with the team from Eat It. I'm Dr Shane. It's been a pleasure chatting to you and we'll talk to you again next week. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.